Ian Trottier here for another discussion of truth from Anaheim. Uh, uh, Clay Clark's uh, Thrive Time putting on a remarkable event. Yet another remarkable event from Clay Clark. Uh, this one is Reopen America, the Reopen America Tour. And uh, in, in, in at the table here, I have uh, Mr. Scott Kesterson from Bards FM, who actually came highly uh, recommended. Okay. okay. Uh, that's good. I'm glad. So, you, you, I, I, look, I, I don't know what you do, and I don't know you, uh, but uh, you've kind of highly recommended. So, uh, without further ado, Scott, please introduce yourself for listeners. Sure. Uh, my name is Scott Kesterson. I, uh, I run, I'm the voice and the founder of Bards FM. I'm a documentary filmmaker. I spent three and a half years in Afghanistan. I've spent uh, probably about eight years as a consultant in Department of Defense. I've been podcasting now for about three, four years, very heavily involved in the uh, 2016, uh, as far as on the ground type stuff with President Trump. And um, one of my main areas that I've spent a lot of time in is information warfare. So. Info wars this is a question that I had yesterday, and I posed it to actually two retired colonels. One's a lieutenant colonel, one's a colonel. Both are here. The colonel has his own online talk show. The lieutenant colonel, ha- colonel has a, a, a group that he's putting together nationwide. Uh, but the question I posed was, here's two former, former military, you're former military, uh, that have recently gotten into this war zone in regards to the passing of information. You don't have to answer this question, but if something comes to your mind, then answer it. 20 years ago, Alex Jones is at the Bohemian Grove exposing some of these things that they're doing there in that grove in Mendocino. What brought you, Scott, to the forefront of saying, we have a problem in our media? And, and it's not only media, but let's just, we'll stay with the information, out of the way information. I worked in a real interesting space in, in Department of Defense in, in, Af- in Afghanistan. I worked, I was, I was the first citizen journalist, to, first of all, to be embedded with the Department of Defense Embed Program. That was in 2006, and that went to 2007. And so I had a firsthand look to see, as an independent, it was working as an embed with the military, what journalists were actually what journalists were actually covering. And what we saw over and over was that most of it was made up. Most of what they would do is be to take a story and then they'd spin it to always a singular agenda, which is something about, you know, something anti-soldier or something uh, anti-war. And when you get to this constant spin, you find out that there's just such lack of integrity with journalists. Now, I begin to know a few of them, and I also, through it, some relatively big names where I could I was writing my own uh, papers and analysis and when I have a sit down with them as a even though as a citizen journalist I could present them with certain details and facts what was amazing was to see how I could you could shape the story more towards a positive vein when moving forward in this in that space you started to realize just how big this network was because the journalist space is a is a cult is the easiest way to say it. Once, they, once they've gone through the schooling of, of the education of being a journalist, there are certain things that they're supposed to do. One is that you're supposed to be liberal, you can't be conservative. Um, you're supposed to have these values that are, they end up shaping very much towards the communist type values. 
So being anti-American is also part of that cult. And as we, you grow into that, then you start to see how deep that goes. So I worked at Fort Meade for a while as a consultant with a team out of, uh, uh, in Fort Meade. We traveled the world looking for new threats and new technologies. And one of the things that was really interesting to me, I, again, was looking at, I constantly was looking at our domestic threats. So I wrote a brief back in 2012 saying that our, our, our next and most dangerous threat isn't coming from a foreign adversary. It's coming from our corporations, from our ad agencies, from our news media. It's going to run this as an information war on the American public. And the most threatening part about that is not only did we not have the authorities to counteract it, we didn't even have the mechanisms to do it because they were the ones that owned the platforms, they were the ones that owned the voice. And you can see this happening because more and more, we forget too often when we talk about media, we talk about, we need to understand that that's a whole mechanism architecture, including advertising, in, including branding, including uh, the, the mechanisms of information and the normal ones of news, but also music and movies and film. These are all domains of warfare that are mapped out very clearly in, in the book Unrestricted Warfare that was done by the Chinese. So when we start to understand the depths of information warfare, you start to realize more and more how much you're shaped in your life and almost living literally in a matrix where they are literally shaping the direction you're going. So to kind of case in point in that, in 2012, MasterCard announced that it developed a new algorithm to, for predictable um, sales. And they had it down to where anybody that was a regular user of their card, they could predict a year in advance to the day what item they would purchase. That isn't just a happenstance thing. That's because the world that people were walking into was shaping them so much that they literally could target the way you buy, consume, and behave. And that's not even, that's not dealing with anything external, only just what's around us in the information space. So it becomes pretty evident when you get enter into about 2015, I was, as I continued my analysis on stuff, in addition to my work, I stumbled on what has become known as the 16-year plan, which was a map out of what the Obama administration and was was doing and where that was headed with Hillary Rodden Clinton had she won. And when you start to add all these pieces together, you could see very quickly that there was a, an agenda in place to move us and steer us towards a certain end. And it was then that I you know, really made the big leap. I, I left Department of Defense in 2016 and I was like, I'm moving forward full tilt because this is, this is a fight that either we fight it here, and this is how I talk to a lot of my buddies about it. We either fight this fight and win it, or we lose everything, because everything, this isn't a different, this is a different type of fight. Information warfare is one of the most damaging and probably, in the end, destructive means of warfare you could ever wage on a society, because it's inverting truths. It's constantly taking us and flipping us to where you don't know what to trust or who to trust. And then when they, as they're rolling it out now, you're starting to see the, how they're vectoring in on key targets. Like, they're gonna vector in on churches, they're gonna vector in on assemblies of people, they're gonna vector in on children, children of the prize. And the more that they can corrupt this thinking and shape this thinking, the idea is to turn a society upside down to where it doesn't know right from left, it doesn't know black from white. And at the end, it's so confused, they're easily subdued. And that's about where we are right now. The difference is that what our fight back is that thanks to our Constitution, it still has some merit here as far as it, it, from the psychological point of view of people, even though they're trying to crush it. These rallies that we do constantly reinforce these places of where the truth line is. And that's and the other part about that that is so important, and I, I push this a lot on 
where my platform has moved to is that our singular line of truth comes back to faith in God. That's the one thing that does not waver. And I will tell you from a spiritual point and a faith point, a person who's accepted Christ, that's one founding truth. But I will tell you scientifically from a point of looking at information warfare, it is so powerful because it's the one thing that when people have something solid to hold on to that they can count on, all this other noise begins to fall away. But we're really in the depths of a, a dark, dark period right now. It is a period where they are literally trying to use every mechanism they can to subdue a nation. And not to subdue it, but to leave it permanently damaged. And they, we are talking about the elites, we are talking about corporate elites, we're talking about government elites. I mean, if you spend any time in D.C. and you've been around these people, they literally see everyone else as lesser than them. That is not the way our country was ever designed. It's not the way our Constitution was ever intended. And yet here we are. We are in a point of true tyranny. And I just like to, you know, as I remind people, if you read the Declaration of Independence, and I hope everybody reads it at least once a week, if not every day right now, when we get down to that discussion of tyranny, it says, and it's very clear, it's not just our right, but the key word is duty, our duty to throw off this form of government, and that is where we are. What is, first off, by the way, uh, are you familiar with Paul Craig Roberts? Uh, only by name, not by work. Uh, former economic advisor, I believe it was the Reagan administration, Oxford, either Oxford Fellow or Oxford PhD. Real bright guy. Uh, he's been saying now for a number of years that uh, that Americans, it's a facade. It's simply constitutional rights don't exist. But let's take that kind of word there, constitution. Is there, Scott, is there a, is there a level playing field here in this this great divide, uh, politically speaking, uh, Fox News blabbing right side, uh, MSNBC, now CNN, which surprises me over the course of the past 20 years, CNN blatantly now to the left. But a clear, clear divide. We're not getting the news as it's meant to be given to us. We're not giving a balanced level reporting. We're getting opinions and we're being divided. Um, how can Americans come together? Well, I think that's the center point in faith, one of the strongest pieces. Clay's rallies are there. We're having a rally as well, a big one, a four-day festival in, in, uh, in St. Charles, Missouri, on the 26th to the 29th of uh, August. And that is really centered around the concept of a revival and reviving the faith and strength in America. Our founding fathers did not mistakenly place moral law, which was our accountability to God and the unalienable rights that God gave us, on the top of the tier. That was established in the, in the Declaration of Independence. And it's for that very reason. It's in, because we, we are accountable to something greater, and when doing so, we are able to come together and get past this divide. If we think about these impassioned debates that our, our, our framers of this nation had, and they were impassioned. If we study our history, we know that they were you know, they're, they're literally feeling like they're at each other's throats. But what prevents them from taking up arms with one another? And it's their overall common center point of faith in God. That is the part that guides them in all things. And it's so important that we, we re-grasp this. If there's one area, that if you look strategically, that the left has waged a over 100-year war on, it has been our faith and our churches. When we did the 501c3 model with the church, they silenced the church. They moved the church. It wasn't separation of the church from the state. It was taking the church and silencing them through the rules of the 501c3. 
The church was always separated from the state. In fact, if you talk to people on the IRS, they shake their head and they say, I don't know why churches do this because they're tax exempt anyway, because they're separate from the state. This is a joke. What they did is they did the big con. It's like, hey, I'll tell you what, if you get people to give you money, it's your people that will give their money back. Well, that's not the way faith works. That's not the way the tithing works, but that's a whole other discussion. But the point is that they separated them from the ability to speak politics. If there's one thing our historians can come to a common agreement on, and they don't come to a common agreement on a lot of things, but they will all agree on one thing. We did not have the revolution. We did not get a nation, would not have had, had it not been for our churches speaking about tyranny and educating people on the destructive nature of what it was and holding them accountable, the, the tyrants accountable for the lens of God. That is so important. And today what we've seen, what we've seen these churches, they've literally in this whole point, they've capitulated. They've given in. So it becomes even more important just to come back to your first statement. On October 21st, 2001, we signed the Patriot Act. Our Congress did. Effectively, our Constitution, whatever was left with it, got burned to the ground. That one act alone severed us from our Constitution. The facade from then has just continued to try to give placate this idea that we have a Constitution. What President Trump did, which was brilliant, is he never had to abide by the Constitution. He forced them to play by the rules of the Constitution. And in so doing, they exposed themselves of how nasty and corrupt these people were. But above all of that, we still have that structure of moral law. We're supposed to. And that was the point that when you serve the nation, there's supposed to be a, a literal fear of God that if you violate certain tenets, there's a, there's a consequence to that. We've gone past that. And that's really what, like we talk about Bards Fest in August, and we talk about, you know, a lot of what I focus on on my own podcast, even in today's speech, that's us getting back to the true center point of what's going to shift this nation. That's how we come together again. And, you know, I guess see many times, we may not all, we may sit down and not agree on some scriptural issues. Okay. But I'll tell you what, when we put our love of Christ before all things, we will come together and we will stand together as one. That's never changing. And they can't take that away. In God we trust. Um, Scott, are we? Let, I'll give this a different spin here, and, and I want to see your reaction here, and see where you're going to go with this. We're sandwiched between two nations, uh, one that is still has a strong tie to its mother, uh, to the north, Canada, to the United Kingdom, and another to an adversary, uh, historically of the United Kingdom, being Spain and Mexico to the south. A common the, the, the common denominator there, if we're pitting the, Fr uh, the English and even the French in that regard, but the, the, the English and the Spanish going against each other, they're fighting for under, under, under one common umbrella, and that is a former Roman Empire and the remnants of that and what comes to life in the form of representation of God. Okay, We see that in, uh, in the Pope. So, so, for instance, you're talking... Uh, about certain church and states and dividing dividing the two and and how that was crafted with the with the, 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 with, the with the foundation of the United States Mexico struggled for centuries to try to create a separation of that uh, because as their taxes and their tithes were paid yes it went to Spain but that wasn't the final stop the money continued to trickle down and it ended up in the, the seat of the Roman Empire which still exists today in 2021 that would be wrong. Same thing happening in, in England, 
Yeah, the, the British were a little more. They pushed back a little bit more with the with the Church of England and and, and, and some of their monarchies pushing 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 back for other reasons. Birth the United States of America. Hey, God, we trust. Are these historically we look at that? Are, are these types of issues? Was Mexico and is Mexico fighting the same tyrant that 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 the United States is fighting today? Yes, in a different form, but I would say yes. So first of all, we know that when we start to really map out our deep state, we know that one of the central hubs to that is the Vatican, and it's the Vatican Bank. And when we get into the banks of London, we see this piece, and then we start to look at the global international monetary issues. We have seen this morph now to where economics has become that lace, if you will, to control all and to pull the strings on all. So we're in an interesting place right now where as we watch this attempted destruction of our own economy, they're trying to universalize all economies at the same time. They're trying to bring down us and bring up others so everybody is flat, and which we know won't work, at least not in the way we should all be thinking. And so this is all being engineered through the leverage of loans and debts and the leverage of, of power of, of, of commerce, essentially. What's very interesting to me, when I'm, I'm and just kind of taking from where you're, you were stating, putting in your statement, there's a couple of historical points that I think are relevant. One is when we get into the early age period of the colonial period in our country, financing the war was a very difficult thing. They were looking for loans from across, and it included going to Spain, going to France, and they were coming up to a certain degree empty-handed. One of the things that they did to to actually fund the war is that patriots broke from the dependence on the British imports. So that started in the Carolinas with a small uh, boycott movement by women that led to a substantial boycott, even though it was against the king, and that was terror. That was a treasonous act. They were starting their own local economies, which now was patriots funding patriot economies. So that cost the British 50% of their imports into the economy. That's ultimately why they sent the Redcoats into Boston, and we led it with the Boston Massacre. There were two soldiers for every eight people. It was 2,000 soldiers in a 16,000 population city. That's phenomenal. You think about how many soldiers they put in there for the sole purpose of controlling that, that descent, if you will, right? So the Patriots were fighting in the early time, the same type of fight we are now, underfunded, fighting against a, a tyranny. We tend to think it's different, but in fact, it's very much the same. They didn't have the resources of England. Have. Granted, they didn't have satellites, but they had a massive navy. They had tremendous leverage, to your own point. They still controlled Canada, and they had tremendous influence through Spain, even though they had just fought the war with Spain. Spain had no interest in having the British come down. In fact, Spain controlled part of the, the Mississippi River for trade. So we had, we had enemies on our soil. It's interesting when we go through the Federalist Papers to see these things really light up because we tend to forget that all the West was owned by Great Britain, and we had, or a big chunk of it, and we had Spain still owning a big piece of it, and the part that I go back to, controlling shipping routes on the Mississippi River, right? So all these things are, are very important to put in context that when we feel like this war is too much, that it's over us, it's, there's, we have dependency on China, they're everywhere, there's this information war. The British had spies everywhere. They were hanging people in, their, in people's front yards. There was true tyranny on our soil. The only thing we haven't hit yet is the rounding up of people and that true overt level of tyranny. 
But all of that said, we are that we have always been the biggest threat to their plan because when we put people that are that don't have accountability to a tyrant and you make them accountable to God, that means tyrants have no place. And when you do that, they will use all tools possible to try to bring us down. And frank, frankly, in my own opinion, we've never really left the Revolutionary War. I think this is we were just continuing to fight the same war that we didn't quite finish then because they still fought. And especially when we look at the brokered deals between England and the U.S. and the trade deal afterwards, a lot of those don't make sense that we won. But we needed their trade. And let us not forget that the King of England required us to pay the debt back of our own war for us to get the trade deals, which we desperately needed because we didn't have the, the trade internally. So there was a blockade on us. And so really what we're facing now is this continued war from 1776. I'm glad you said that because I've frequently mentioned on my shows that we, 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 we gained independence geographically, but one of my arguments is that we never did gain independence economically or financially. And, and, and something I hit on is actually something that's associated to a release from Harvard University through the George Washington Foundation that George Washington owned shares in the Bank of England while he's fighting King George of England. So talk a little bit more about, and I, and I want to get a little more, go down that Vatican road with you a little bit, because the recommendation for you to be sitting here was through an archbishop bishop that I know you've had dialogue with, and, I, and I'm assuming it's the same archbishop that's kind of been a, blow, a, a whistleblower yes. out of the Vatican and has been, has been uh, ostracized immensely uh, for, for speaking out and supporting Trump. I believe you can declare you can you can you can you can clarify that uh, as is. Speak a little bit about uh, the city of London, yep. how that correlates to the Federal Reserve System in the United States. If you want to broaden it up to the uh, the centralized banking system out of out of Basel, you can do that. But end up, if you will, Scott, with uh, with this Archbishop. Sure, absolutely. And so, I mean, I think really where it starts, we have to kind of roll back initially to realizing that the Vatican and the, the and London were, were very much partners early on. We, this is an important piece. Now that, that rolls back into the English history of where the breakaway, where we have the Reformation and we split with England. There is a, the church is not, becomes not so separate from the Vatican. It's a bit of, it's again, we're dealing with this smoke and mirrors thing. And if you're talking about Rome, as I've said many times, Rome never went away. It just changed its title. We went from Rome to being the Roman Catholic Church, but it has more, it controls more territory now than it did on his Rome, which I think is so critical. Financially speaking. Financially speaking, and influence-wise. Because remember, the Vatican controls a billion people by influence. Whether or not they all abide, it's still a billion-person organization. It's not small by any means, right? If it's a company, it's the largest company on the planet. Absolutely true. There is nobody, nobody comes close to it. So the idea, this gets the complication when we look at our founding fathers. This is my opinion, and it's I can't prove this, at least for the research I've done yet, but there's a lot of indicators that they knew when they wrote the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, they knew that this war was not over. But what they did, I believe, is that the dream was to create a true independent United States, a republic. Ben Franklin's great quote, and you have your republic, hope you can keep it. Well. I think what's important about this is that I think they knew that this was going to be a come a time like we're in now, but they gave us the tools within the Constitution, even though they try to take it away. First Amendment, and most importantly, second, 
but in that order. You know, as I've always said, you have to exploit the first before you do the second. But as Pastor Greg Locke said in an interview I had with him, when he went and met with the Sheriff's Department, you come and take away my First Amendment right, we'll greet you with our second. So this is the point of the second, is it's the, it's the seminal line of being able to protect your home and property. It's not, I don't think it was ever intended to be marching on DC, you know, that sort of thing. But quite to the contrary, is when patriots really hold the line, they have the tools, and the federal government we know is fearful of this. We can see it all the time. Why else would you try, constantly try to be taking the weapons away, right? So the Vatican banking system has, is basically set up on a triad. It is the city-state of London, and it's the city-state of D.C. That city-state of D.C. was established in the Act of 1871, which is important because even though this seems very cursory when you read through it, it was very substantial since they kind of slide a hand a little deal and change our Constitution in a way it worked so that it became a corporate entity ruling us rather than unalienable rights. This, so, is, this is after, just an insert, this is after Abraham Lincoln had been assassinated. Correct. Absolutely correct. And after we were supposed to get a, a new deal, and I'm, I'm calling it a new deal, but the, the, the reconstruction of the South, which of course didn't happen either, right? That's a whole other rabbit hole that, it, you know, it's worth people looking at. I'm just going to kind of tee it up this way. There's a real good point of why this, those in the southern states refer to it as the War of Northern Aggression while the northern states refer to it as a civil war. It's very important because from this, it was never for the south, it was never about slavery. Slavery was only 1% of the owners. Other than that, the south were just, they were just small farmers for the most part. The north made it out of slavery. But what the north was really trying to do was build industrial mechanized agriculture in the south, which the south didn't want to happen. Now, slavery was an issue. I mean, when people say this, that's, that's not true. It was an issue early on in the Constitution. In fact, that they, they postponed the issue of slavery 20 years in the signings of the original Constitution because the, the economic pushback from the South was so severe on slavery. But slavery itself was wearing itself out. It was too costly. I'm not in any way advocating. I mean, I always have to throw these in these days. I, I adhor the concept of slavery. But the fact is that the southern states had built an economy that we inherited, if you want to look at it this way, because this was, this was a world that was, we were assembling from the European model, and we were trying to unravel this. So it takes time. So there was a war, and I, and I argue the Civil War was engineered because it was a great way to fracture and decimate the, the concept of the, of the republic. The southern states argue that it was always about a war of rights and the states' rights, which I think is true. Because you look at how the Federalist model worked in, it was all about retrieving the power back to a stronger Federal, which is exactly what our Founding Fathers did not want to happen. It's detailed over and over in 85 Federalist Papers. It's there. And there's no question that they were trying to limit the power of the Federal Government. But the, the Civil War allowed them to extend further. Then with the, when they came out of the Civil War, the setup for that is now you're bankrupt as a nation again. We were already bankrupt, not almost bankrupt at the end of the Revolutionary War. They had to get the loans from the City of London. Now after the end of the war, Civil War, we're bankrupt. The Vatican Bank steps in with their proxies in the City of London and they offer us another loan in exchange for a, a change of the Constitution, which is the Act of 1871, which now takes us down this whole other rabbit hole of moving, creating DC, the District of Columbia, which now becomes a non-U.S. territory, effectively, 
controlled and managed by the Vatican arm. So you end up with the Vatican, you end up with the banking arm, which is the city of London, and you end up with the military wing, which is, becomes DC. And in that, that's the organization literally to control Western and a large part of the world. So that whole network there becomes your influence point. And this is where I think it's very hard. I, I just have these conversations enough that it's hard for people to start accepting the fact that I don't fault, it's not a fault. It's just, it's a very difficult piece to come to where you have to start looking at your own country and going, oh, so we weren't the good guys all along. It's like, no, we were actually in the hand puppet of the Vatican doing the demonstration of stuff across the world, trying to keep culture subdued and doing it under, from the Vatican's point of view, you know, blessing it off. So now to your... your or the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, right. Now to your Archbishop Vigano. Archbishop Vigano is, a, is an amazing, amazing man. I'm not Catholic, so I thought it was an amazing honor to be as a, quote, Protestant, if you will, uh, to get his first interview in two years. It was quite amazing. And he did an amazing interview. And, I, and I've said this to people to listen to this interview because he has detailed out what was going to happen before it ever happened. He talked about how you know, they were using scripture to try to manipulate events globally to make it look like the, the revelation and to try to manipulate a view of the rise of the Antichrist. He talks about pedophilia within the church, which is a huge thing. And he talks about the, even the vaccine and what they intended to, to roll out on this. So he does this in December of 2020, uh, 2020, right? So this is almost a year ago, right? And, and what we end up with is a view of how deep this network is within the Catholic hierarchy. And when we start to really map out, this kind of goes back to something you said a bit ago, which is we have been living under an illusion. Once once they've seized control through the banking and the influence, the education components, the advertising, you map out the thousands of corporations in the world, it maps back to about 300 corporations, right? I mean, that's about all that's out there. And I, my numbers aren't exact on that, pretty close. And that maps back to, ultimately back to a handful of powerful people that are ruling most of this. And within that, somewhere in that circle is the Jesuit order, which links to the black pope, which is then the behind the shadows linked to the forward pope, which we see, which is the white pope. So you start to see this massive organization, and all of this is Rome. Rome never went away. It's just been here the whole time, and it's just put another whitewash on it, another layer of corporate head, another business, another business, another business, another subsidiary, right? It's like a Ponzi scheme. It's a big Ponzi scheme. It's the biggest Ponzi scheme ever imagined. It's straight out of, it's taken the concept of Babylon, and it's moved it to another level of phenomenality. This is incredible. Francis is the is an Argentinian born. I understand he's the first uh, he's the first Jesuit. You're talking about Jesuits. He's the first Jesuit pope in the history of uh, since the Jesuits were established as an order in 1534 or something like that. 1530s. Um, Scott, why is it that the Swiss pontificate? putting emphasis emphasis on that word the Swiss pontificate guard why is it that they guard the Pope I, I thought they were in Switzerland yeah, they are okay yeah no that's a very interesting point again where do we find our common thread banking right banking banking is literally you know it's interesting we look at banking and how it's always been that powerful piece look at the rise even of the Catholic Church out of Rome. I mean, it was the bankers, the banking families that started to really build that strength. 
and this is where religion was used. And I and I you know I say these things respectfully because I'm not trying to. This is not a bash Catholics thing. I'm very clear about this. But the fact is that the Vatican Church and organization is, as you said, it's a corporation. It is the largest corporation in the world. It uses people like every other corporation, and it has twisted so much of the truth around faith to blind people from what's really going on behind the scenes. I mean, we know, we have enough evidence now to point to the fact that you have the banking, which is moving to Switzerland, and this was part of, kind of jump around a bit, but this is part of like the Iran issue with Obama. That cash money went into Iran. A chunk of it went to the Vatican, and then another chunk of it was then processed to cleanse it and to pass it back into the world through other activities and various things like we're seeing now through the Swiss banks. I mean, this linkage is moving constantly and it's a channeling of paper money and a channeling of, of all the structures around that to get people to continue to worship it, own it, control it, and give away your free will. Ultimately, all this comes down to something fairly simple, which is quite amazing when you think about this. All of this is about controlling us. The whole thing is about enslaving and controlling humanity. <clears throat> so I'd like to bring this up on my own show. It's like, why are we such a big deal? I mean, seriously, let's, like, let's get, if we're just a bunch of cattle, like they like to say that we are, why go to all the effort? Because we're not. And that's the biggest gift of this whole thing, I think, in this time of awakening, is to realize that we truly are children of God. And what is our true nature, our true power, in the sense of having faith to move mountains from here to there, we can, we are able to, we can connect with God to do that. And because of all this other nonsense that they do, constantly moving the ball, constantly trying to get us in debt, trying to control us with information, they're trying to get us, by our own free will, to destroy us. And that's the ultimate game. And if we can awaken to that one point and just say, no, I'm done, step out of the game. And I'm telling you, you will see this world shift in six months like you've never imagined it. If people come together, to your point earlier, do so through, the, through our love of Christ and simply step out of the game and say we're together or we're not with them, this thing explodes in our way, in our favor. I want you to talk a little bit about liberation theology, but before you get into liberation theology, I want to hear your comments on that. And again, this isn't bashing religion, and certainly not bashing Rome or the Vatican. There's corruption in, in all large bodies of business or religion, as it is. We're simply trying to root out corrupt uh, agents that are aimed to destroy the Constitution. That's, that's, that's simply what, what I'm doing. I imagine that's, that's what you're doing as well. So speak a little bit about liberation theology. But with that said, before you talk about that, how do people that listen to this, how do listeners remove themselves from that system? Well, I'm glad you asked that because this is something I've been pushing. In fact, General, General Flynn and I started talking about this a year ago. And we have kind of a history together that goes back some time, not directly, but indirectly supporting each other. It goes back to Afghanistan. And what I started mapping out was what I call county by county. Because when we start to really look at where our power is, we can't control the strategic, meaning like DC level and global level operations. That's out of our realm. We can't control operational, which is very much in the realm of like the states. And we have a very hard time controlling our own state legislatures. Look at in this state with Gavin Newsom, look in Oregon where I live. Look at that thing up there, Kate Brown, right? I mean, they're, they're out of control. But we can have immediate and powerful effect on our counties. That's kind of the tactical level of this fight. 
And it's so important that we do this because when we start to move in and start to really apply, as we're seeing happening more and more, applying the pressure to the school boards, applying the pressure and the change, not just pressure, but change, to the school boards, to the city councils, to the mayoral's office, to the county commissions, even to our, our sheriffs, to get them to live and be by the rules of the Constitution. And with that, to reset their grounding in faith. It's just that simple. We are a country built on God. That's that. There's no other way to get around it. Once that begins to happen, and we can, we start to secure our counties again, it's something that we as people can affect. That doesn't. That's not a mystery. It's happening. Like I said, just look around. But it also means bold action. You know, I've said this about the, this nonsense about the COVID thing. If we had had men, a big piece here, as I think you and I can both agree, that they've been kind of missing on the battlefield lately. Absolutely. Right? right? So if we had had men sit down with their county commissioners and their and their sheriffs, and I'm not talking like big masses. I'm talking like groups of three, five men literally having a cup of coffee with the county commissioner and saying, let me explain to you how this is going to work and how it isn't going to work. And here's some things that aren't going to happen in our community. If they had had those one-to-one, man-to-man talks, most of this nonsense would not have gotten off the ground because the county commissioners would have been accountable, which is the big deal, been accountable to people in their community, and it would have been very directly put. I've also said on my show, if women had gone and sat at the county commissioner's office or the city councilor's office or the mayor's office and the mayor and just hounded them, and this is where we have our two sides of our fight that work together, right? Women can call a wife. I can't call somebody's wife, but a woman can call somebody's wife. And let me tell you the power of that network when you start implementing those pieces where women are calling women, like the mayor's wife going, your husband's doing this and we're at his office. There is a different type of tenor that begins to happen in these political debates. We're not active enough yet. And we need, this is where the, the local issues become huge. We're far, and I say this, people keep thinking we're getting close to that 2A. We're only close to the 2A if they enter our homes. That's the first thing. You do not cross my line in my home. In fact, I've, I've said it openly to my own sheriff. It'll never happen. I'm a good sheriff. But there's certain lines that you will not cross. In Oregon, you got a good sheriff. Oh, yeah, amazing. Yeah, he's an amazing sheriff in Southern Oregon. A great guy. And we've Grants Pass. Uh, Douglas County. So, and, it, and yet, all of the Southern Oregon counties, and most of the county sheriffs in Southern and Eastern Oregon are really good. I mean, they're... they're because they have to be. They're much more accountable to the people by virtue of how these these counties work. What they lack is this understanding of the next step of where we go as a constitutional sheriff. You know, imagine, the sheriff has the ability to r- rally up a posse. The only other person that can do that is the President of the United States. They are tremendous forces in this change. So our counties can be reset as almost sovereign places. And when we're leading with our faith, and this means as well, I mean, as one... Pastor McLeod's in Atlanta, those churches that closed, they needed to be closed because they weren't following God's way and they weren't following this nation's way. I agree with that. But there's huge voices in our community from the pastor's side. And and when we talk about kind of you know this revolutionary theology, if that's that's how you rephrase it. Liberation theology. Liberation theology. Um, Vatican Second Council of the Vatican after World War II. I'm gonna I'm not I'm gonna look at this more but I'm gonna re, I'm gonna kind of rebrand it here in using that term. The, the, in where I'm, because with the thread I'm going, I'm going to kind of use your term. I mean, it, it becomes a theology of our country, which is moral law. We're resetting that at a local level, 
and we're moving through this corruption and all this nonsense to reset our counties back on a structure as our founding fathers did. Once we do that, once we're there, we are now moving our country back to that pivot point of a constitutional republic county by county. You can't do it in every county all at once, but I'll tell you, there is so much alertness now, so much awakening now on these levels of the moral law, peace, and the way the constitutional works, constitutionality works within our republic. There is This can happen much faster than we've ever imagined, but it's gonna pivot on us being able to take the specific action. So I'm just gonna give you the seven that I work with. One is home churches, you get faith back in the home. Two is homeschooling, get the kids out of public schools. But that also means communities have to work with those parents that can't just do it on their own. So you're creating like pods, for example, right? Three is what I call Patriot Gardens. We have to get back to growing some or all of our food. Everybody can grow some food. You can grow sprouts on your countertop, right? But we have to take that accountability and then work together to try to break the corporate network of food control, which is a huge one. Four is right works. So as we find different, we have to first of all face that if we're working for a corporation, we're gonna to have to find a way to break from it. Maybe that's going to work for a Patriot company. Maybe that means doing several small things that are gifts and talents that we have to build an income. And maybe it won't have all those benefits of the 401k and all that, but that's the old world. We have to be willing to walk away the fifth one here is health and welfare. We have to be able ourselves to take care of our own health. Fitness, diet, um, and, our, and what we eat, and also what we learning a bit about herbalism, which is what God gave us. Breaking the dependency on the corporate medical tyranny that's happening right now. We also need to be, we need to look at conservation. Conservation is within the domain in which we live and within our communities, but conserving and working towards being more independent from, again, energy and water. Those are things at a county level that most counties, if they work together, can really come together on. And the irony about all of this, and I have one more after this, but the irony about all of this is that when you start talking this way, this is very Teddy Rooseveltian. This is conservation America, not radical left, you know, green, whatever the heck it is America, right? He was a steward of the land, and that's what we're talking about becoming again, becoming stewards of our land. And then the final piece is informed action. We need to literally be involved in learning, educating, becoming wise with what we have, and maintaining that knowledge to keep our communities accountable and remain engaged. If there's one thing that comes across again and again in the Federalist Papers, outside of the accountability to God, it's the engagement in our politics. We have to remain engaged. And if we're not gonna do that, I mean, all this work that we try to do, information sharing, breaking through the cabal, all we're doing is talking to a blank wall. People have to take that accountability, and that's where we have to start in our home. Yeah, they've got to act. Um, any thoughts on liberation theology? I really don't because I'm not well enough schooled on it, so I'm going to have to pass on that. Um, gold standard is abolished in 1971, Richard Nixon. Should, 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 should the U.S. currency have an intrinsic metal I think supporting so. it? I think so. I think we need to have, you know, I think there's a couple different ways of doing that. I've heard some interesting theories on this. One was like doing a total inventory of a country's resources as long as the country owns them. I mean, that's a big key. But then those resources can be used as a global balance. I, I hate to use the concept of basket of, of currencies because that gets into a, a SDR, which is not something we want to really, I mean, we don't want to go SDR wise. But when we start to go into this principle of resources, Money should have a 
physical backing. I'm not a big, I, I'm actually very, very concerned about the push towards digital currencies because they translate value towards the amount of work it takes to unlock. And that's a, that's a nefarious value. Matter of fact, if you have a server farm, that, that value goes out the window. So what I, I'm still a traditionalist in that sense. I think that gold or silver are two, two pivotal points that are important. And I think in backing a currency to that, once you get rid of the corrupted trading and the market fixing that goes on, like just happened with um, the GameStop issue and the silver buy, which just blew that out of the market. Once we start to get back to getting rid of that sort of manipulation, getting a constant currency foundation in a, in a uh, metals or a or commodity of some fashion, or like I said, even looking at the whole country's commodities, which gives it a little more equal play field on a global basis. Because not everybody has gold, not everybody has silver, but nonetheless, I think you have to have that. Otherwise, there's no restriction in printing infinitely, which is what they do now, and just running the presses to print more paper money, to build more paper nothing. And in the end, the biggest value, you know, ironically, was of all people to write this, it was Karl Marx in his volume one, Das Capital, that wrote that the biggest, basically the biggest threat to future economies was that the fact that people believed it was the belief in money, not the tangible currency behind it. It's phenomenal, right? Yeah, it's like poetry. It is. Thank you, Carl. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, what's next as we wind down here? Scott Kesterson's with me here. Scott, what's next for you? What are you working on right now? And uh, leave it at that. What's next for you? What are you working on? So the biggest thing on the horizon here is Barnes Fest. That's going to be uh, August uh, 26th to the 29th. It's going to be in St. Charles, Missouri, with an, right next adjacent nine miles away. It's going to be another venue. So it's two venues, one mission, basically. We have an indoor venue, which is in St. Charles. Nine miles away is the family, what they call the family drive-in, which is more of an outdoor venue. We've really built that one up to be for families, Patriot families, and the indoor one is more a traditional sit-down venue. Both venues work on the same principle. It's, we're all centered on faith and God in our country. It's love country, but a lot of love God right there, right? And so we're starting each day. It goes 10 to 10. We have we have sermons each day. We have great speakers, Sherry Tenpenny, Dr. Dr. Uh, Eric, uh, uh, Dr. E, I'm just, I've been in this all day long, so apologies, <laughs> Dr. E, um, and all the, all the five doctors and six doctors that lead on this, on this medical issues. We have uh, Mike Lindell coming, we have uh, Joe Flynn coming, big names and some wonderful people. And then we're, we're doing this process each day, a little longer format than what goes on here, like 45 minutes to, for a longer talk. And then we're each night we're having a concert, and, and, and it's really going to be neat. That we open the festival in the evening when we on the evening of the opening day we're blowing 300 shofars, so it's going to be a big deal there. We're working on coordinating a global shofar blowing at the same time. What's and, a shofar? Oh, it's okay. So a shofar is the is really what they call the horn of God. It's what it's in legendary the horn that uh, Gideon blew when he had the Gideon, and also what they blew when they walked around the uh, Joshua walked around uh, Jericho. So it's the horn that comes. It's a horn that comes from an animal's horn. Right? It depends on how they make it. Um, but uh, it's it's going to be quite a ceremony, and it really is about really reestablishing that fervor and love of God in our country. We're going to do that for four days. In addition to that, I'm working on a book right now. Um, it's it's called Jericho Rising, and um, it's based on this whole county by county issue, kind of like how to take our country back 
uh, county by county. So this is, that's quite a bit. Forward by Richard Mack? Uh, well, maybe. Maybe. Yeah, no, I, I mean, it's not, I mean, I haven't talked to him, but maybe. Yeah. Yeah, he's actually going to be there. Um, Great. Sheriff Mack, he's going to be at the festival. So, yeah. Excellent. And uh, to close out here, uh, some final thoughts, some final words for, for listeners. What, what do you want them to walk away with? Well, I think that what's important is, is that if we keep our faith and we really put our faith back in God and, and our love of Christ in this country and really get back to the founding issues, we find the bridge to get back together. And those that don't want to join, we know it's like, okay, we from the shaft get separated, right? But our country was built on God. I mean, it's, there's a reason that it's there in the Declaration of Independence. And it wasn't done lightly. It was intended. I mean, this is really, literally a blessed land, a land that God gave us, again, a land that we have to worship. And, and we need to respect it with that. And if we humble ourselves that way, that doesn't mean weak. And I need to be clear about this because people often say, it's like, oh, you're going to humble yourself, so you're going to give up. Uh-uh. There's nothing about that. It means getting stronger. But it means really putting first and foremost our trust in God in all things. But Christians were never a doormat. They were never intended to be a doormat. That's the teachings of this modern nonsense church. They're strong. They're strong in faith. They're temperate. They have amazing grace in all they do. But they're fierce in defending what is theirs. And what is truly ours is this nation. What is truly ours is this land that God gave us. And it's our freedom to do as God gave us, which is our unalienable rights. When we understand that and really come to there, man, I'm telling you, this thing will shift fast. And I think we're getting closer than people realize. Keep the faith. Ladies and gentlemen, Scott Kesterson. Scott, thanks for joining the show. I look forward to keeping in touch with you. Thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure.